So good morning everyone. The title of this talk today is The Spark That Lit The Dharma Candle. And as you may know from um, the Zen Chat newsletter, um, today is a particular, particularly auspicious day in the Zen calendar. In Japan at least, the 8th of December is called Rohatsu or Bodhi Day, which celebrates the awakening of the Buddha. And Rohatsu just literally means the eighth day of the twelfth month. And, um, and also looking at timelines, uh, uh, Sydney's about two hours ahead of Japan at the moment on timelines. They're winter, we're summer, but timelines were fairly similar. So as we're sitting today, um, there are many Zen monks around Japan you're on the last day of an eight-day, special eight-day, very tough um, session. It's the toughest session of the year. Not only is it in winter, um, but each night they stay up a little bit longer and meditate. And on the last night tonight, um, those with the energy um, sit right up until midnight. And then when midnight comes, the tradition is you go outside and you look up at the morning star. <laughs> now, what are they celebrating? Um, all of you are very familiar with the story of the Buddha, <clears throat> but it's worth just repeating so that we remember it again and sort of bring to light how come we're here practicing this today. Um, the Zen tradition um, is an aspiration to be true to what the Buddha did, you know, so it's not about scriptures and, and intellectualising the Dharma or whatever. The Buddha sat for, so tradition says, for uh, six years on a rather fruitless search, going nowhere, um, trying to realise um, his true nature or realise, find the answer to his questions mm -hmm, about life. And uh, as the story goes, after uh, many long years of asceticism and intellectual inquiry in the forest, he, sort of, he comes across a, a milkmaid whose name is Sajata, and she offers him milk rice and kind of restores his energy. And uh, then he goes away with more energy and perseverance in this kind of more middle path that avoids extremes and he sits there underneath the Bodhi tree, a fig tree, and early one morning he looks up at the morning star and in that moment is a moment of realisation that lights his Dharma candle. Mm -hmm. And according to the Zen tradition he says these words, wonderful, wonderful, now I realise that all beings are the Tathagata or have Buddha nature. It is only their delusions and attachments which stop them from realising this very fact. Mm -hmm. And then according to the tradition, Mara, who is the Buddhist um, equivalent of the devil, you know, come, comes to the Buddha with his army, you know, of followers, and challenges the Buddha's realisation, you know, well, who, who says you're enlightened? You know, you say enlightened. Who, who bears witness to the fact that you're enlightened? Mm -hmm. the Buddha touches the earth, right? 
the earth bears witness to my realization. Mm -hmm. The earth bears witness. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a, now a, a particular um, Buddhist type of statue, which is the earth touching Buddha, which uh, uh, Robert Aiken gave to the Sydney Centre to the Sydney Zen Centre as a gift many many years ago. So, after this awakening, he's obviously radiant and glowing, and he goes back to his um, monk friends in the forest, and they see him, and they they see some kind of difference in his demeanour. <clears throat> And they kind of say, what, what happened? Who are you? Are you a god? Are you a spirit? Like, what are you? And he says, no, I'm awake. Mm-hmm. I'm awake. None of those other things. I'm just awake. I've woken up out of the self-centred dream. I'm just awake. I'm a man. Mm-hmm. And uh, he then gives his first teaching, which is the Four Noble Truths, that there's suffering, a cause of suffering, um, there's an end to suffering, which is nirvana, and there's a path that leads to the end of suffering. And that's a very good, simple teaching. But like with any teacher, as his um, experience matures and evolves, it shifts, and it shifts more into what we would call an emptiness teaching. Um, and so there's been other versions on those first those four noble truths that include that sense of no self or emptiness, is that suffering there is but no one who suffers, clinging there is but nothing to cling to, Um, awakening there is but no one who gains anything, a path there is but no one who walks it. Um, And so there's an integration of the the Four Noble Truths with that more mature, um, deeper spiritual way of understanding it rather than just being some kind of slogan. And so the, the Buddha goes through many, many, many years of teaching. We understand he wasn't, he just stayed there in bliss for about two weeks when he had this experience. And then it dawned on him that, um, that other people could, expi- could, could benefit from this experience. So the, the Bodhisattva spirit in the, in the Buddha comes forward and he teaches for the rest of his life till he dies. And what's one of the stories in the Zen tradition on which our, our particular tradition is based is one of the koans which is um, the Buddha twirls a flower. So he gets up in front of the assembly of you know, hundreds of people and they're expecting words, expecting a talk. And all he does is he picks up a flower and twirls the flower. Mm-hmm. And he says a few words along the lines, this is the true treasury of the Dharma, the flower twirling. There's only one man up the back called Mahakashapa who breaks into a smile. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is confused. But Mahakashapa breaks into a smile and the Buddha says that he now transmits his teaching to Mahakashapa because he understands the meaning of the teaching of just twirling a flower. And so that's the basis of where Zen begins because it's a non-discursive type of teaching. It's not based on words or scriptures or intellectual understanding. It's, it's what one person described as an experiential religion. It's just based on your own experience of meditating. Mm-hmm. If you know what water tastes like, you know what water tastes like. You don't need someone to explain it to you. 
And so that transmission, that tradition flourishes. And then according to the tradition, the 28th um, person in the transmission line is a man called Bodhidharma who travels over to China and Buddhism is already established in China uh, but he comes over with the meditation tradition and as we know he has a, 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 an interview with the Emperor Wu um, who is the head of China and a famous dialogue occurs uh, where the the emperor says to him, I've built all of these temples for nuns and monks and so on so that Dharma can flourish. What merit is there in that? Bodhidharma says, no merit. Uh -huh. And the emperor, quite perplexed, says, well, who are you standing before me? And Bodhidharma replies, I don't know. And then he turns his back, walks out of the palace, um, chooses to live a life of voluntary poverty without any status, without any temples, etc. and lives in a cave meditating for 10 years. And then his first student comes along, you know, and he transmits the teaching to him, the second founding teacher and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. And then it flourishes from there in China and then to Japan and Korea and in the last century to America and Australia. Same transmission. And uh, so as it moves from, but if you reflect on, we don't know whether this is a true story or not, but to sort of give a sort of more modern understanding of the, the significance of it, imagine Bodhidharma, a monk coming to Xi Jinping, you know, mm -hmm. today, the president of China, I built all these cities and factories and created all this wealth and taken people out of poverty. What merit is there in that? No merit. Mm -hmm. Who are you standing before me? I got if I know. <laughs> and off he goes. And it's something I, I feel quite proud of the fact that the founder of our tradition was this cranky, eccentric, free spirit. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah shunned that kind of worldly fame and so on, but he just sort of doggedly, stubbornly stayed with it and then something flourished organically out of that experience. And then it's passed down through many teachers and then um, one among many teachers who brings it to Japan is Dogen, who is considered the founder of the Soto sect that we belong to. Um, and uh, Dogen comes back to China after some awakening and maturing in his practice. And his friends see him, you know, and say, what did you, he's radiant, you know, what you gained, you know, what, what was, what happened? And he says famously, well, I learned that sparrows go cheep cheep, chirp chirp, you know, and crows go craw craw. Mm -hmm. That's what I learned. Oh. Okay, all right. Mm -hmm. And then another famous saying comes out, I don't know whether it's Dogen or who it comes from, but we've all heard it before. Before awakening, um, chopping wood, drawing water. Right? After awakening, chopping wood, drawing water. <coughs> something special, something ordinary. Something special, something ordinary. Same thing. Mm -hmm. It's the experience 
that we realise. Um, of course, we're all used to hearing the word um, enlightenment, like the Buddha's enlightenment. The word enlightenment is actually comes from an intellectual tradition in Europe during the 18th century, where the French Revolution started. And the age of enlightenment was kind of the age of science, um, anti-monarchy, democracy, liberty, fraternity, um, the death of superstition. So it's sort of an intellectual movement. And in a way, it's, it's inappropriate to be using that term to describe the Buddha's experience because it's not about science and mathematics and algorithms. It's really about having a very earthy, organic experience of what life is about. And the words that come to my mind that I've used in talks before to try and um, demystify what the word Buddha nature means, to me it's best described as organic intelligence. And it's this extraordinary intelligence that just runs through life and is life. You know, the seeds grow into trees, you know, and babies grow into human beings with brains and hearts and lungs and function. Birds fly and defy gravity. It's that, that intelligence that pervades everything, in a sense, is this organic Buddha nature. Um, the deep ecology, the interbeing, the interconnectedness, interconnectedness of everything, where nothing's separate and everything depends on everything else for its for its life and its existence. That's that's Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. That's what the Buddha realised. It's only our delusions and attachments which stop us from realising our own organic intelligence. Delusions are concepts and words and ideas, language, wonderful gift, but clouds our true nature when we get over-identified with it. Attachment associated with emotions, wonderful things. But when we cling and reject with those emotions, we create suffering for ourselves and other people. Cut all of that away and our organic intelligence shines, you know, and we, we live our life from that perspective. I often wonder how the Buddha would be in our world today. He, he, he lived in an agricultural society. We now live in a post-industrial information technology society. I imagine he'd, he'd be someone like the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh. Not necessarily, couldn't change world events necessarily, but with a wise, compassionate witness to what was happening that tried to engaging compassionate action even though that action may fail you know and um, to bring this down to a very current concrete example of the compassion that flows out of the buddha's wisdom that we we cultivate is um, a story which was in one of the newspapers last week with the bushfires and a woman who ran into the flames, tore off her shirt and um, 
and, and in, enclosed a koala that was burning to death and saved that koala. Mm -hmm. So when we can't, that, that was, whether she's a Zen Buddhist, an atheist, a Christian, who cares, right? But it was in that act of selflessness really embodies um, in a very, very current Australian contemporary way the spirit of um, compassion that flows out of that, that wisdom. And um, when we think of Avalokiteshvara, who is the deity of compassion in Buddhism, she has these many eyes and many arms and many hands to witness suffering and to help people in the world, like with action as well. And she doesn't think about what to do. She just sees and she acts. And so that, that woman who saved that koala is like Avalokiteshvara in action. She doesn't even care about her modesty. She tears off her shirt. She doesn't think about it to save a koala. And it's a, a great story which really embodies the, the, um, the teachings of the Buddha. When you become a, a Zen teacher, it's not really a, um, a role like becoming a, an abbot or something. Um, it's really just a job description. You know? And the job description is to um, keep that Dharma candle alive, do you know, and, and to light up the candle with other people, you know, help people light that candle for themselves. And uh, so it's the passing on of that, um, that experience of um, realising organic intelligence and the interconnectedness of everything. And the last words of the Buddha uh, before he died, um, according to the tradition, is um, be a light unto yourself. They're great words. Be a light unto yourself. Don't look outside for outside authorities or scriptures or texts. Be a light unto yourself. And finally, um, to come back to the, uh, the earth-touching Buddha um, that Robert Aitken gave us as a gift many, many years ago, um, in the Sydney Zen Centre, uh, I wrote a little um, poem in response, which I forgot about for many years, but I'll share with you. And uh, maybe I need to give a bit of context because in the uh, Diamond Sangha tradition, we don't use it here, but on the altar, there is a long, flat stick called a kyosaku. And uh, the tradition in Zen is that the, the leader goes around and wax people on the back to wake them up. If we do it voluntarily, you know, um, voluntary suffering. Um, but it's a wake-up stick. But metaphorically, what the Kyosaku is, is, a, is Manjusri's sword. And Manjusri's sword is to cut away the delusions and attachments which stop us from realising our Buddha nature. So in the spirit of this, my little poem, my little offering, is Shakyamuni Buddha, earth-touching Buddha, alone in your body of wood. The carver's knife 
lies at your feet. Woodblocks, bring in and out. Thank you.